Well, good morning. Good morning. Good to see you here. Thank you, Arnado, for leading us in that. Uh, as Arnado's already mentioned, we're starting a new series today called Fig Leaves. It's going to be five weeks. And if that reference is lost on you, it's a reference to Genesis 3-7, where Adam and Eve, after the fall, take fig leaves and sew a covering for them to cover their nakedness and shame because of their sin. And so we're going to spend five weeks talking about sexuality. Now, um, I got to admit, I'm slightly anxious about a series like this. Given the fact that um, we live in a world where, in a culture where this is such a taboo issue, given the reality that there is so much misunderstanding about this, my primary concern is not that I fear culture, not that I doubt the sufficiency of the scriptures. My primary concern is that we are misunderstood, that our words, as Alnado and I preach through this series, communicate things that aren't helpful for people. And so we would really appreciate your prayers as we walk through what is going to be a, um, a confronting series, I think, for many of us. But just from the outset, I want to acknowledge and recognize that there are people here from every different background, and we approach these issues from very different grids and perspectives. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a believer. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian. We're glad you're here. We're, we're glad that you're here this week as we're glad that you're here every other single week at Anchor. We want to be a church that's not just this holy huddle for Christians, but a place where people can come and discover and learn more about Jesus. But particularly if you're here and you're not a believer and you are part of the LBGT community, we're glad that you're here. We want Anchor Church to be a place that you can come and learn and explore without judgment around the identity that you have for you. If you're here and you're a Christian, you're someone who loves Jesus, maybe you're a Christian who has some unwanted same-sex attraction. Maybe you're a Christian who has a quota of sexual addiction in your life. Maybe you've got shame and guilt over past sexual sin. Then we're glad that you are here. We realize that... Um, these issues that will be raised during this series are not distant. They're the issues that you personally experience or that someone you love personally experiences. We're not just talking about a thing or an issue. We're talking about people and their experiences. And we want and hope and desire and pray for this series that it wouldn't simply just be informative, but that it would be transformative for you wherever you are at wherever you're at today. And so let me start with um, our hopes and aims for this series, give you a bunch of qualifications, and then we're going to read the scriptures and I will pray. So firstly, what are we hoping to get out of this series? Our aim, there's a number of them, but by and large, our primary aim is that we would build a church here at Anchor. There's a place of safety and refuge, particularly for those who wrestle with sexual brokenness. Be they someone, a Christian who is wrestling with same-sex attraction, someone who is wrestling with sexual addiction and brokenness in their life. We want our church not to be a church that our first response is one of condemnation and judgment, but a place where it is safe, particularly a place that is a refuge for those within our Christian community who feel exiled because of their sexual identity. Additionally, we want to model for you a posture of what it looks like to approach these issues. We want to model for you and communicate for you a posture. This series is not about arming you and giving you ammunition for the cultural war that's happening around same-sex marriage. In fact, we're probably not going to talk about same-sex marriage all that much. But what we want to do is model for you an approach to how you can talk to your neighbor how you can talk to your colleague, how you can talk to your family member, your friend about these issues in a way that models love and grace and generosity. We want to help every single person, no matter what your preference is, what your orientation is, to speak to people and to approach people from that position of love and grace, from a position of understanding. Some of the people I've read have coined this phrase, convicted civility. That we don't just drop our convictions, they don't mean nothing to us, but that we approach other people who may have a different conviction to us with this civility, this sense of this is a person 
and we can engage and talk about these things. We want to give you a biblical framework for sexuality. So much of what we believe and hear about sexuality is very different from the Scripture's view of sexuality. So we want to unpack and outline for you what God says about these issues. And finally, we want to create space within our church. Space here on Sundays, but more particularly space within our gospel communities and our gospel triplets that we would begin the process of talking and healing and restoration and applying the gospel to every corner of our lives, including the area of sexuality. So those are our aims. That's that's what we're hoping to get out of this series, not exclusively, but by and large, that's what we're trying to do in this. Let me just offer a couple of quick qualifiers for you before we get into this. Firstly, the first thing I want to do is apologize to those of you from the LBGT community who have been hurt by the church. Now, I don't say that in a, in a way of trying to make a political statement or, or anything like that. I'm genuinely, honestly apologetic for the way that you have been treated, for the way that the church has been ignorant of so many of the issues around your sexuality, for the way that the church has been brash and aggressive in our approach towards you as people, and for the way... By and large, the church has offered simplistic solutions to very complex issues. We want to apologize for that. Now, I'm not saying that from a sense of personal guilt over the way I've treated my friends. But I'm saying that by and large, the capital C church has dealt horribly with this issue. We've got a poor history of it. And so we want to apologize for that. And we want to be a church that seeks to bring solutions to that and not contribute to those issues and further them. The second thing is that I don't claim to preach from a position of superior morality and perfection. Arnado doesn't do that as he stands up in in a couple of weeks. Our church is not standing here saying, we've got this figured out. We stand on the moral high ground. Church is about messy people ministering to messy people. That's what we are at Anchor. And so we're not standing here on a platform of moral superiority, but we're standing here as broken people with all of us, our own quota of sexual brokenness and mess in our lives. Thirdly, we're not experts. I've probably learned more in the last two or three weeks reading and sitting in seminars and listening to people and learning than I have in a long time. By no means am I an expert, I'm not a sexologist, I'm not an anthropologist, I'm just good at reading the Bible and explaining it, unfortunately, but that's good for church. But we're not experts. I'm learning, Alnado's learning, our staff is learning, your gospel community leaders are learning, we're providing a whole bunch of resources for this, but we're on a journey of figuring these things out, and so we invite you to join us on that journey, not stand from a position of expertise to declare un- alterable truth on these issues outside of what God says from the scriptures. We're not anti-gay. That's important to state. We're not anti-gay. There is a false dichotomy that exists that if you disagree with someone on their orientation or their preference, therefore you must hate them. Now, I'm hopefully going to pull apart desire and identity in a way that helps clear the air a bit on that, on that dichotomy that, that has been created, that if you disagree with someone, that you must hate them. I've got heaps of friends, and I disagree with their sexuality. It's just a heterosexual version of it. I don't hate them. I love them. And so we're not anti-gay. We don't hate gay people. And what we're really trying to do here is figure out a way of having a conversation with two people or two groups of people that have very profoundly different worldviews. This here is not a, a cultural war. What we're experiencing in our world at the moment as Christian people is a clash of worldviews. That's what we're experiencing. The argument really shouldn't be about sexual ethics when we can't agree on a foundational difference on worldview. Because if we worship a God, if there is a God who is real and if he is good and loving, that has profound implications for our life. The reality is most people in our culture don't operate from that foundation. There is no God. He has no say. We're free to do what we want. So the conversations we need to be having 
our conversations around, is God real? Does he exist? Does he say anything about these issues? And finally, we want, I want to say that some of the things that will be raised in this series will cause significant, profound anxiety issues for people, and we want to be there for you. Every week, our prayer team is up the back to pray for people. So please avail yourselves of them throughout this series. But additionally, our staff want to be there to talk to people who are wrestling with some of these things. We've got some good referrals for resources and, if need be, some counseling that is specialized in these areas that we can refer you to. But if these are things that you particularly wrestle with, then please don't sit on them, don't bury them, don't hide them. Be open about them. Talk to us. We want to journey with you in that. I want to offer you a couple of quick um, recommended resources. Um, some of your gospel community leaders will have links to a whole bunch of stuff that you are free to ask them for. But let me just point you to a couple of other resources that I've found helpful in my research and reading for this. The first, if um, you're a Christian, you're wrestling with same-sex attraction, I want to point you towards a very helpful website called livingout.org. Now, with, with a bunch of testimonies and resources of people who have got a similar experience to you. Often being a Christian with same-sex attraction is a very lonely place in the church. And so you need to find people who have got the same story with you, maybe someone who's further down the track that can show you what it looks like to walk with Jesus in the midst of that wrestle. And so livingout.org is a great website. The book that has most informed this talk that I'm giving you this morning is a book called The End of Sexual Identity by a, name, by, uh, by a lady by the name of Janelle Williams-Paris. Um, she's a cultural anthropologist, a very smart lady. Uh, Openness Unhindered by a, a lady called Rosaria Butterfield. Is God Anti-Gay by a guy called Sam Albury. Sex and the Supremacy of God, moderated by John Piper and Justin Taylor. Gender Dysphoria, Understanding Sexual Identity and Homosexuality and the Christian, all written by a brilliant man called Dr. Mark Yarhouse. If you're looking for anything on this issue, he's probably been the most helpful writer and, and author that I've read. Dr. Mark Yarhouse is a professional Christian uh, psychologist and professor in this area, researcher as well. And finally, a book that I've only read a small part of by People to, People to Be Loved by Preston Sprinkle. So if you're looking for resources, I'm more than happy to point you in the direction of those. But there are a multitude of good resources today, along with a whole bunch of other ones that aren't helpful. So having said all of that, all of those things, hopefully we're on the same page a little bit here. Let's go to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to read a small part of the scriptures there. I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to attempt to try and unpack some of this stuff for us. So Matthew chapter 3, if you don't have a Bible, the verses will be on the screen behind me. Matthew chapter 3, starting at verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the, to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized to you, and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with him, I am well pleased. Let me pray. God, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you that you're a God who speaks to us. We thank you that you're a God who is clear. God, we pray that you would help us to think your thoughts after you, to do the hard work of thinking through both the scriptures and culture. Guard us from the errors and the blindness of quick judgment of a lack of understanding, of oversimplistic solutions. Help us to be a community that embodies the grace that you have demonstrated for us in Jesus. God, I pray that you would speak through me this morning, that the things I say would be helpful, beneficial, the truth in love. We ask this in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Amen. You know, Adelaide is known and famous as the city of... Churches. Melbourne is known and famous for its grand boulevards and trendy alleyways. Sydney, Sydney, on the other hand, 
has developed a reputation and fame of another kind, the city of sex and sin. Or, so in the opinion of Ann Davies, who wrote uh, an article in the Sydney Morning Herald in January of last year with that as the title. She notes that since the first fleet first set foot on Australian soil, sex and rum were the order of the day. She says that uh, Marines were permitted a double portion of rum, and I quote, to make merry with women upon quitting the ship. Of the 1,079 people that stepped off the first fleet, only 193 of them were women. The ratio is a bit out of whack there, right? Now, that ratio caused Governor Philip to be quite concerned about the irregularities that might happen among the men, all sorts of irregularities. And so the English decided to solve partly that problem by emptying a woman's prison of 200 female criminals, putting them on a ship called the Lady Julian, or nicknamed the Floating Brothel, and sending that to Australia to help balance out the ratio. The rocks quickly became a hotbed of brothels and larrikins and prostitutes. If you fast forward a couple of years or a hundred years and a bit, and we have the famous story of Tilly Devine uh, immortalized in the Underbelly Razor series. She operated 18 bordellos across Darlinghurst and Surrey Hills and took prostitution to levels of organized crime unknown anywhere else in Australia. In the 60s and 70s, King's Cross became the center of the sex trade in Australia and Sydney as we serviced the U.S. Marines during World War II. Or today, our city celebrates gay culture probably better than most in the world with our world-famous gay and lesbian Mardi Gras. 10,000 participants in the parade, 300,000 people watching from the streets and millions on their TVs. We are a city that is obsessed with sex. We live in a sex-saturated culture. And so it's important for us as Christians not to just run and hide from something that we might not feel comfortable with, but to step out and engage with our culture and think carefully about it. And that's what we're hoping to do today. This morning, I'm going to be speaking about sexual identity. Every single person has a core operating truth that they live from. A core truth that we believe informs who we are that shapes our identity. It's kind of like a life script or a life narrative or story that we all live out of that shapes how we view ourselves. Now, if you've watched the movie Toy Story or the, the sequels of that um, of that movie, you'll notice that there is a lot to say in that movie about identity and identity crisis. There's a particular scene in there where Woody has been taken off by a toy collector. He's had this epiphany where he's realized that he hasn't just been this, this toy that's grown up in the house of Andy, right? You'll notice that all of the other toys seem to have this history, this story behind them, that they've come from the shop, but Woody doesn't really know where he's come from. He seems to have just been a part of the family for a long time, and then he realizes that he's actually a collector's item, that he's valuable, and this collector wants to look after him and put him on display with people that are like him, other valuable collector's items, and he has this moment, this identity crisis, where his friends are begging him to come back and be part of their posse and come back to Andy, and he says, no, I want to I be here, I want to be looked after, I want to be valued, I feel dignified here, and the thing that causes him to change his mind is he looks on the bottom of his foot and he sees written, Andy. And that shapes his identity. That is the story that he lives by, that who I am is that I am primarily Andy's toy. And he decides to go back. But you'll notice that there is this sense of identity crisis and identity confusion for him. Who am I? In our culture, sexuality is the stamp that we have placed upon us, our sexual identity that constitutes who we are. Sexual identity is how you think of yourself or how you attach meaning and significance to yourself, how you perhaps label yourself in regards to your sexuality. And what we've done in Sydney and in most Western cultures around our world is that we've created this indistinguishable link between your desire 
and your identity. Between your desire and your identity. That is to say, if you desire people of the same sex, therefore you must be gay. Or if you desire people of the opposite sex, therefore you must be straight. And along with those identity labels comes a certain role that we're supposed to play in society. Now, the labels that we have today are not new. Gay, straight, bisexual, sorry, they are new. Those labels are very new, in fact. In fact, the first recorded um, use of those labels of gay and straight comes in the 1930s in, in recorded print in America. Very new this vernacular that we have. If you asked someone 100 plus years ago whether they were gay, straight, or bisexual, they wouldn't even know what you meant. Now, heterosexual and homosexual activity has been around forever, but the labels that we place on them and the, and the, the identity that is associated with those labels are new social constructs. And that's important to know because somehow we think that our Western cultural version of this is timeless and neutral and right. But it's just not the case. As you look through culture and history, different cultures and different people have associated different things to same-sex and opposite-sex behavior. In fact, even today, these Western notions are quite unique. Not every culture attaches the same sense of meaning to desire that we do. For example, um, Janelle Paris in her book, The End of Sexual Identity, talks about an Australian anthropologist who spent two years living with a tribal group in Indonesia. They're called the Bugis people, I think is how you pronounce it. But she spent time living there and noticed that this cultural group had five genders. They had male and female. Then they had a, a feminine male, a masculine female, and then intersex people in between. And what she found, by and large, is that culture had gender as the driving point of their sexuality. To them, they would never consider gay or lesbian or bisexual because their gender is the thing that drives their identity. And so if you are a masculine female or a feminine male, your gender is the thing that drives your social construct and norms. Now, what she has pointed out there is that uh, in fact, the, the fascinating thing is that in their culture, if you are intersex, that is, if you have some ambiguity about your sexual makeup, maybe some of your, um, your, home, your um, anatomy is both male and female, there's ambiguity there. In that culture, you would be called abisu, and you are honored with a special religious role because they think that you have perfectly this perfect coalescence of male and femaleness to you that makes you unique, and you have this special religious role in their culture to bless events like births and weddings and funerals. And so not every single what she's trying to do for us is help us to see that not every single culture attaches the same meaning to sexuality that we do. We attach desire and identity together. They attach gender and identity together, and other cultures do it differently. So it's important for us to realize that. We are unique in the way, Western 21st century is unique in the way that we have connected identity and desire together. But the question is, is sexuality the center of our being? Is sexuality the thing that makes us who we truly are? In her book, Janelle Paris says this. She's a professor of anthropology at a Christian university in Pennsylvania. She's a brilliant academic. She's a Christian, and she writes this. This is from her book, The End of Sexual Identity. Sexual identity is a Western 19th century formulation of what it means to be human. It's grounded in a belief that the direction of one's sexual desire is identity constituting, earning each individual a label, gay, lesbian, straight, etc., and a social role. Now, we live in a time where desire and fulfillment make me who I am. 
desire and fulfillment make me who I am. And there is huge pressure for us to become that identity because of the culture that we live in. But I want to suggest this morning a different way of viewing who we are as people. So come with me back to Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, where we read the account of Jesus' baptism. Let me just read quickly from verse um, 16 for you again. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This event here marks the beginning of Jesus' public ministry of teaching and preaching and healing. It's a significant moment in his life, and it's a powerful lesson for us of identity. Christ's identity was not something that he figured out, was not something that he earned, was not something that he created It was something that was intrinsic to his relationship with the Father. As Jesus emerges from the waters, the voice from heaven comes, God's voice, this is my son. I love him. I'm pleased with him. Now those statements about Jesus came well before Jesus did anything. It's not like he earned that label. It's not like he earned that identity. Before Jesus ever healed a single person, before Jesus ever spoke of the kingdom of God, before Jesus ever died on the cross and rose again, conquering sin and death, the Father loves the Son. He is His child that He loves and is pleased in Him. Now that's important because if you keep reading, and the reason we know this is about identity, is because the devil, the enemy, comes to test Jesus and call that identity into question. Have a look at what it says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3. This is the, the very next thing that happens. Jesus is baptized, the Spirit descends, the Father speaks, and then the Spirit takes him to be tested by the enemy in the wilderness. And it says this in chapter 4, verse 3. And when the tempter came to him, And said to him, if you are the son of God, if you really are loved by the father, if he is pleased with you, then command these stones to become loaves of bread. Or again in verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. You see what's happening here is, The enemy is seeking to call into question Christ's identity as God's beloved son. He wants him to believe that your identity is earned. That it is something that you have to prove in order to demonstrate your worth and your value and your significance to God. But with God, that is just not true. These same words that the Father spoke to the Son are words that are true of you if you love Jesus. Come and have a look at what John says in 1 John 3 verse 1. He says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. If you're a Christian, then the core core truth about you Your identity is that you're a child of God. That you are not defined primarily by your preference, your orientation, your sexuality, but that you are defined primarily by your relationship with God. That He has adopted you into His family. That His affection is for you. The problem with sexual identity is that sex was never meant to be a strong enough hook to hang our identity on. Only God is a strong enough hook to hang our identity on. Finding our identity in our sexuality, be that straight or gay or bisexual, is not a strong enough hook for us to find who we truly are. Now, please don't mishear me. I'm not trying to minimize your feelings. When you ask someone who experiences same-sex attraction, that's not a choice for them. 
By and large, research tells us that. Personal testimony tells us that. The way that they experience their same-sex attraction is the very same way that you woke up and experienced your opposite-sex attraction. I'm not minimizing the strong sense of personhood that your orientation informs. Please don't mishear me. But what I am saying is that your desire, as strong as that desire is, as much as it forms your personhood, does not constitute the truest thing about you. Does not constitute your primary identity, particularly if you are in Christ. It's a shaky foundation for us to find our sense of worth and value and meaning and purpose because those categories always change. Your preferences change. Research has shown that a number of people change their label and their preferences throughout the years. Your relationships end. If your identity is in your expression of your relationship, what happens when the relationship ends? People die. Unconditional love is impossible to find. And so when we shape the truest thing about us and our core identity around these things, it's such a shaky foundation for us to understand who we truly are. It doesn't last to ultimate fulfillment in life. And I think we all realize that. We know that to be true. And yet we still attach so much of our significance and meaning and value and worth to that identity. You know, we don't just do it in the area of sexuality. What is the, the first two questions you ask someone when you meet a new person? Say, what's your name? And then quickly afterwards you ask them, what do you do? Right? Because we're trying to search for something to categorize this person that we've just met. Or, hey, I'm Matt and I'm a pastor. I'm going to tell you, that's a conversation killer very quickly. Hey, I'm Matt, I'm a pastor. Oh, really? I've just got to go and... I am a teacher. I am an economist. I am a photographer. I am a mum. We so quickly want to identify people based on what they do. And we do that with sexuality. You are the behavior that you act out. Now that is so untrue on a number of levels. That is so untrue on the level of career. But to say to someone, because of your desires, this is who you are, is just not an accurate statement. It, it might be, but chances are that's not an accurate statement of who they are. If you said to a Christian who experiences unwanted same-sex attraction that because you experience this, this is who you are, you've placed a label on them that does not accurately describe their experience or the sum total of their desires. I want to suggest that every single person, irrespective of your worldview, irrespective of your faith, irrespective of your orientation, have been created for relationship with God. That's what we believe as Christians. Every single person has been created primarily for worship. And that means that we all find our primary identity, who we are, in relationship to the God who created us. Irrespective of your orientation, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, created in the image of God. And that means that we find our deepest sense of who we are in relationship with God. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, hearing that, hopefully that informs for you some of how Christians approach this issue. That there is something about what we believe about God that shapes everything about our lives. So, desire doesn't automatically equal identity. Hopefully, that's what I've demonstrated. Desire does not awkwardly, automatically equal identity. Our primary foundational identity is that we've been, we have people created in the image of God for relationship with Him. So what does that mean? What are the implications of that truth for us? If, if you are someone who is a Christian who experiences same-sex attraction, that means that you are not the sum total of your desires. 
Your desires are more than just sexual. You have a whole heap of other desires in there. And one of your desires is to love Jesus if you're a Christian. You are not just the sum total of your desires. Our Western culture has told you because you experience these desires, therefore you must be this. And there is a lot of pressure to live that identity out. Not just pressure. There's a lot of welcome. There's a lot of sense of community. There's a lot of acceptance that a same-sex attracted person gets, particularly a Christian, that they don't receive from the church because of their orientation. Dale Keane, in his book Sex and the I World, says, Equating sexual orientation with our core identity is a choice and not a desire. Creating sexual identity from our orientation is a choice, not a desire. Now, he's not saying that you get to choose your orientation. Most, most people with same-sex attraction overwhelmingly say that that's not their choice. They didn't choose to do that. Now, as Christians, we've been obsessed with this debate of nature versus nurture. And we want it to be nurture. We want it to be their environment. We want it to be their relationship with their daddy because then we can point the finger and say, you chose that, choose something else. All of the research says we don't actually know what causes this and it's probably a mixture of nature and nurture. And so I think we just need to stop arguing about whether that's a thing and accept that both of those things are a thing and it's different for different people. There is not just one storyline that you can draw for every single person's sexual experience and say, Hmm, that's it. It offers an oversimplistic solution to a person's experience. And on that round, I've forgotten what I was saying. We don't choose orientation. Same-sex attracted people, by and large, don't choose their orientation. Now, the next question is, if I don't choose my orientation, or if someone doesn't choose their orientation, can they change their orientation? Mark Yarhouse is very, very helpful in this respect. In his book, Understanding Sexual Identity, and his book, Homosexuality and the Christian, he talks about a number of, uh, a whole host of research that has been done in this area. Research from a, a non Christian worldview and research that he has done from a Christian worldview. Now, it's not popular, his research. Most people don't like it. In fact, he was invited to present some of his research at a conference. And a bunch of people from the gay community found out that he was presenting this change in orientation research and agreed to come sit in the front row and stare him down as he did it. And so he reached out to the organizer and he said, look, can we just chat before I present at this conference? He acted out of his conviction civilly to have a conversation and not just lob grenades over the fence in fact, that same community of people that came to stare him down after they heard him out invited him to come and speak at their conference because of the way he spoke and because of the research that he presented. In a peer review article, he said, what our research has found is that by and large, Christian people who want to change their orientation, that happens for a small portion of people, it happens for some, and it happens very modestly. That is to say that most people who have engaged in some form of counseling or therapy in order to change their orientation, what happened was most people experienced a decrease in their same-sex attraction, not an increase in their opposite-sex attraction. Change doesn't happen often, and it often doesn't happen completely. That's what the research says. And so... What he's saying in this is that if the church has one narrative of change, that is, if there is one way that we consider you to be spiritually mature and holy, and that is that you have a heterosexual orientation, we'll never get there. Some people never experience that desire. And I've got to tell you, some of my same-sex attracted friends are far more holy and mature and godly than some of the opposite sex attracted people that I know. Just because you experience this desire does not automatically mean that you are immature, unholy, and going to hell. 
But too often the churches, because of our proclivity to create desire, orientation, uh, sorry, identity from desire, because those things are so connected for us, we jump to quick conclusions about that label. And so we need to offer a different story. We need to offer a different journey for someone who experiences same-sex attraction. Here's the deal. God promises to forgive sin. He doesn't promise to heal it. God promises to forgive sin, but he doesn't promise to heal it. He doesn't promise to take it away. Rosaria Butterfield, who is a professor, or was at least before she got married and had kids, she's a professor of English and women's studies. She was a lesbian. She was a gay rights activist and lived from that identity for more than a decade. Is that 10 years? More than 10 years. She met Jesus. She got saved, and this is what she said. And and listen to her words carefully. When the Lord entered my world... That gospel ignited an expulsive power of new affection. That new affection was not heterosexuality, but Jesus, my Jesus, my friend, my Savior. I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. She is a woman who is married and has children and still wrestles with her desires, her orientation, and her attraction. Is she any less Christian than her husband who experiences same opposite sex attraction? Of course not. If you're a Christian and you wrestle with same-sex attraction, it is a daily wrestle to live out of your identity with Christ. But that wrestle is not just exclusive to sexuality. Is that wrestle not true for all of us? That every day there is a wrestle to live from our identity in Christ, be it finding our identity in our career, be it finding our identity in our family, be it finding our identity in our looks and appearance, be it finding our identity in a relationship. The Christian life is one of constant wrestle of living out of that identity. For some... That wrestle will be a wrestle of sexuality. For others, it won't. But we ought to extend the same measure of grace to others that we extend to ourselves as we try and live that identity out. If you're a Christian, you need to know that... uh, Sorry, if you're an opposite-sex-attracted Christian, heterosexual Christian you need to know that you approach this issue from a worldview and a framework that assumes too much. That assumes too much. That means that we're often jumping to quick conclusions, we lack understanding, in the same way that we do when we cross a cultural boundary. That we think that everyone else thinks like a Western, middle-class Anglo-Saxon person thinks and then all of a sudden you jump a boundary into an Asian culture or a Middle Eastern culture and those assumptions fall apart. If you are a heterosexual Christian, you need to understand that you are jumping a significant cultural boundary, barrier. That truth alone ought to cause us to step back and to be slow to speak and quick to listen. Because we have a number of blind spots to our sexuality. That is demonstrated with our obsession with same-sex marriage, with our obsession over this issue of homosexuality in our culture, when we do that and overlook all of our own brokenness and the brokenness that exists in the heterosexual. It's like, well, at least it's sin of the order of Adam and Eve, right? And that's okay. We've made heterosexuality, the benchmark of holiness and maturity. It's not true. Jesus doesn't save you to be a heterosexual. He saves you to be a child of God who stewards and works out that identity. We have what's called a heteronormative narrative. That is, all of our stories assume heterosexual sexuality. 
We need to begin to paint a different story, a different narrative. And our hope is that over the next four weeks, as we unpack this, we can do that for you. You know, one of the ways that we've, um, the church in particular, has done this is that if you are straight, and I realize I'm using labels here, labels that I'm not particularly a fan of, but if you are straight, you're automatically accepted into the church. You don't need to prove yourself. Generally, people don't question things about your sexuality. You get given positions of leadership without, you know, all of the extra questions. But if you're same-sex attracted in the church, chances are you've had to prove yourself to get there. You've had to demonstrate. You've had to answer a whole bunch of extra questions about that. That approach alone demonstrates a heterosexual blindness to heterosexual sin and a profound obsession about same-sex-oriented sin. And if anything we achieve in this series, if we achieve anything, if we can pull the blinders off and help us to see that every single person experiences sexual brokenness in a different way, we've achieved something. But let me quickly speak to labels as identity markers because this is a question that I get asked a lot. And that is, can I be a Christian and call myself gay? Can I be a gay Christian? Now the answer is, it really depends what you mean by that. There is so much debate around this topic at the moment. But, but here's... Here's the thing, and as I've mentioned before, most Christians never question whether or not a straight person who wrestles with lust can still be a Christian. We don't question that. So why is it that we why do we question that when it comes to same-sex attraction? That reflects our heterosexual bias. When we pull apart identity and desire, makes it very easy for us to say a person can experience a desire, a same-sex attraction, an opposite-sex attraction that's outside of their marriage, and still be a Christian. In fact, they can even go the next step and experience a, an orientation towards that, persistent. It doesn't change and still be a Christian. In fact, they can even get to behavior And walk in repentance and still be a Christian. And so when we blanket things and say, you can't be a Christian because of that label, we're walking in dangerous territory. It's a position of misunderstanding. In fact, there was a story that a friend of mine shared where he told a friend of his, a Christian friend, that he was same-sex attracted and his friend lost it. Because in his mind... You couldn't possibly be same-sex attracted and Christian. We've got to move on from that church and realize that desire doesn't disqualify you from the kingdom of God. And so maybe we need to begin to look past labels and meet the person behind the label where they're at because that label may not be an accurate description of who they are. For example, Wesley Hill in his book Washed and Waiting labels himself A gay, celibate Christian. A gay, celibate Christian. Now, the reason he uses the label gay is because he feels it's an honest account of his ongoing orientation. But he qualifies it by putting celibate in front of it. Because we're so obsessed with behavior. Gay, celibate Christian. Now, so the answer is, it depends what you mean by gay. I think we need to start looking past the labels to people. We've become so good in the church at judging people based on labels, be it a theological label. How good are we at doing that, judging on a theological label? Be it a political label. You can't be a Christian and possibly vote for the Greens. Be it a sexual label. Maybe it's time we start looking past the labels and start meeting people where they're at. Or maybe, maybe we can wind back a bit and find a different label that's all encapsulating. A label that covers all people. And I want to suggest the label is this. It's not biased by our culture. It's not unhelpfully binary. That is, there's only two options to express your sexuality. And the phrase is this. Every single person is a glorious ruin. It's a Francis Schaeffer term that speaks of our humanity our humanness, our personhood. 
And it suggests this, that you are glorious because you've been created in the image of God. That as a human, you are an image bearer. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And that brings inherent dignity and value and worth to who you are. But we're also ruins because we're broken people as a product of our sinfulness, as a product of the fall, as a product of the world that we live in. We are broken people. And that brokenness plays itself out in our sexuality. Every single one of us is a glorious ruin. If you are straight, you're a glorious ruin. If you are gay, you're a glorious ruin. If you are bisexual, you're a glorious ruin. If we can start from that foundation to say every single person I encounter is an image bearer of God who is broken, now I think we start from a place of this person's actually much more like me than they are different. Because what we're really afraid of, I think, is different. We need to start from a place that says every single person is a glorious ruin and experiences their own quota in a different way of sexual brokenness. You see, if you're not created, if there is no God, then your identity is something that you need to work for or work out or create. But if you are created, if God is real, then your identity is not something that you earn. It's not something that you need to prove yourself. It's something that comes in the context of your relationship with God. He defines you as an image bearer, as a glorious ruin. And more than that, for those who have trusted in Jesus, you are washed by his blood. You are sanctified and holy. Your identity is child of the king. I am loved by God. Let's start from those two foundations personally, for who you are as a glorious ruin, for who you are in Christ, and begin to work out this series from that foundation. I've gone way over time. I'm going to pray. I'm going to respond in three ways. I'm going to respond in the Lord's Supper, this meal here for those of you who love Jesus. Take the bread, dip it in the grape juice, and eat it as a reminder that you're a child of God. Our prayer team is up the back. They would love to pray for you. If you've got anything that you would need prayer for, it doesn't have to be with sexual orientation at all. It's okay. You can go back and be prayed for for other things. They would love to pray for you. And finally, we're going to respond in worship as the band comes out and leads us. So let me invite you to stand as we pray and respond to our good God who has made us whole people and redeemed us by the blood of Jesus. God, we thank you. You're a God who loves us. We thank you that you're a God who has demonstrated that love so clearly in the cross. And God, I pray that you remind us that wherever, uh, wherever we approach another person, we approach them on the equal grounds as a glorious ruin. Part glory because we're image bearers, people, humans. Part ruin because we all experience brokenness. God, would you help us from that foundation to be a people of grace, love, hope, and gospel-centered joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.